Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello, nudges. Welcome to the first episode of Obehave of... 2020 a whole year of nudging ahead of us and today i have two of the newest members of the behavioral science practice team chloe and ella hello 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 um so first of all we recorded um two different people at the end of last year can you tell those who they were and why we wanted to speak to them. Yeah, so we spoke to Karen Rubin, who works at Owl Labs, and Dr. Caitlin McDonald, who is a digital anthropologist at the Leading Edge Forum. And we were really interested in speaking to them about the role of technology in the future of work. Um, So we explored a lot of different um, topics. So we looked at remote working, we looked at video conferencing, um, and we're particularly interested in all of that um, because we're fascinated by how the psychology might not have yet caught up with the technology and what we can do to change that. Yeah, because the video calling has been around... I mean, Wi-Fi has been pretty good for the past kind of 10 or 15 years but video calling hasn't taken off as much as people predicted so why do we think that is did any of that come out in the chat yeah i think there's had some really interesting perspectives on what we can do to make it more of a norm Um, and obviously on our team here we have our zoom fridays and we're trying to make it part of just sort of the normal working week um and I think in the future that's just going to become more and more prevalent. So it's, it's interesting to sort of address the, the barriers before. Okay, cool. Well, just before we cut to the audio, we have a little announcement to make, don't we? Yes, Mike. What are we announcing? A little festival of behavioural science called Nudgestock. Oh! So we have the date... Uh, so this is for everyone's diary. Can we now announce the date for Nudgestock 2020? It is the 12th of June. Amazing. So Friday, the 12th of June. Um, um, so all details will be coming out soon, but we just wanted to do a save the date. And we've already got some speakers lined up that I saw the other day who look pretty amazing. Very exciting. Okay, cool. So if you look out for our socials on that, you'll see more information on Nudgestock. Okay. Let's cut to the audio. Thank you. Karen, maybe if we could just start with you, if you could just tell us a bit about who you are and what you've been working on recently. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Karen Rubin. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer at OWL Labs. Uh, we work together to make people's meetings better and more productive and collaborative. That's awesome. Um, and the same question for you, Caitlin, if you could sort of tell us a bit about what you've been up to at the Leading Edge Forum recently and sort of what your day-to-day work is like. The Leading Edge Forum is a research organization that looks into um, now and next technologies. And we tend, to, um, we tend to advise kind of large enterprise organizations about what they need to be thinking about in terms of t- technological developments that are 
down the pike for them. And I am the digital anthropologist there. So the work that I do tends to focus on um, how our technology is going to impact people's day-to-day -day working lives. Um, and to some extent, um, depending on whether it's a, a B2B or a B2C business, it will sometimes look at things like what's consumer technology doing? Um, what kinds of things are we seeing in the consumer space that might be moving into the workplace and how might that impact people's working lives? We're really interested in learning from you guys what you think the main changes over the past 10 years have been um, in the world of remote work. So maybe if we start with you, Karen, what do you think? Yeah, so I, I think you know, the, the biggest change about remote work is that there's a lot more of it happening. And one of the things, I think there's a couple of key contributing factors to this, and I look forward to hearing what Caitlin says as well. Um, I think, you know, mobile technology has made it much easier for everybody to work from everywhere. Uh, we also have a thriving economy and low unemployment in the United States, which means that employers have to look further afield than just their backyard in order to find people to work, which means they have to embrace uh, remote work and people working from anywhere. We also recently did a study of uh, 1,202 uh, U.S. workers and determined that 62% of them work remotely at some frequency. So there's a lot of remote work happening. That's not all the time. Only about 30% remote work full time. Yeah, I think Karen's pretty much covered um, all the bases there, but absolutely, I'd like to echo the same points. It's um, mobile technology and um, just basically increasing bandwidth, increasing speed, and increasing reliability of different technologies mm. that people use to work remotely um, have really enabled a shift in and how people are able to be more flexible in, in where and when they work. Um, I'd say also companies have become more comfortable with the idea of remote working because the technology now supports better ability to do that. Um, but what I would also say is that despite that, um, there is still a, a novelty and a newness to it where people haven't yet developed the kind of behaviors and practices and um, common understandings and etiquette, etiquette that they need to have to feel comfortable doing it most of the time. So I'd say um, teams are still kind of, um, you know, there's no kind of worldwide acceptance of how you join a video call, mm -hmm. for example, or like, what's the first thing that you do when you, you jump on a call with a team, or how do you manage your Slack channel, or whatever it might be. Um, there are a lot of kind of different ways of, of managing those things, you know, formality versus informality, etc. when you're thinking about um, maybe a culture that's moved from email to more real-time chat, might um, have it be a bit stilted, whereas people who are used to um, text messages and, and operating in that way um, might be a bit more informal, and then you find some different kinds of um, uh, clashing expectations emerging. So um, so on the one hand, it's much more common. On the other, um, we're still as people learning how to deal with this together. That's pretty Caitlin, good. I actually have a follow-up question for that. Do you think that the employees are pulling the employers into accepting remote work more? Uh, or do you think that it's the reverse? Mm, that's a really good question because I think people assume that it's all pressure from the bottom up. And actually, I think that there's, it works both ways. So I think in some cases it is the employees who are saying, actually, you know, um, here's another company where I could go and the benefits are great and I can work remotely and, and have more flexibility in my life. So why would I stay with a more traditional company? Um, whereas in some cases you have um, employers who actually want their employees to be more flexible, to be more contemporary, to be taking on a more digitized mindset. And they're the ones who are leading the charge. Um, and the employees, in some cases, are actually feeling very unsettled by this because they're they're so accustomed to seeing success, literally seeing it when you walk into a building um, and understanding right. what the landscape looks like and what that means to them. And then when you move everything into a digital world, um, you now have to navigate and negotiate new norms. And so I think it's, it works both ways. Yeah. Our research is very focused on the employees. And so we have seen that 
you know, there are, I think it's 34% of respondents are willing to take a 5% pay cut to work from home. So they're willing to do more, take more in order to have that flexibility in their life. And uh, more than half would look for a new job if their ability to work remotely was removed. But those are, it's very focused on that person and that employee and their experience as opposed to on the employers and how they're seeing this change happen in their business and trying to enable it or encourage it. I think that's really interesting, especially the fact that people are willing to actually take a pay cut, which you probably wouldn't expect, would you? Thinking about technology, um, for people who don't know a lot about what the OWL is, Karen, do you just want to talk us a bit through about what it is and what kind of benefits it can bring? Uh, The Meeting OWL is a 360-degree, all-in-one video conferencing device. What does that mean? It has a speaker for the folks in the room to hear those folks that are remote. It has an eight microphone array to pick up everybody in the room. And it has a 360 degree camera. One of the key differentiators is it sits at the center of the table and it has a lot of intelligence so that it can identify the people speaking in the room and then show them. And so it allows them to really feel more engaged in that experience and in that meeting. And so we recently worked together on your um, state of video conferencing report. Um, and something that really stuck out for me was that individuals are 3.7 times more likely to prefer video conferencing to phone calls. And sort of a question for you both, I guess, like, why do you think that is? Well, I think it comes back to the, what I was just mentioning around expression and visual cues being a huge part of communication and understanding. There's research that shows that it can cover as much as 50% of what's communicated in a conversation comes from the expression on my face, my hand gestures, the way my body language is reading. If I'm sitting here with my arms crossed and my brow furrowed, you know something different than if I'm here leaning in and fully you know, listening and responding to what you're saying. With audio, you get 50% of the context of a conversation. Uh, You're kind of riding half blind. And so people are leaning into video and wanting video when they have meetings more because it gives them that that second edge on their communication, the things we're used to having when we're in person. Having that video connection allows them to collaborate better and work better together. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple different things. Um, One is in the research that I was doing earlier this year, um, a couple of the companies that we worked with, um, they had implemented new policies essentially saying if you're, especially if you're going to be having a difficult conversation, it's very important to be yeah. on video because you can then get the nuance and understanding and subtext, which can so often be read in many different ways when it's in an email, for example, which I think was really the big problem it wasn't so much that they weren't calling, but they were typing back and forth and then just having all of this kind of non-contextual or assumption about what the context was. Um, conversely, just to be controversial, um, I've also heard people say it's easier to detect lying if you are only listening to what people are saying rather than also watching their face. Mm. Um, I'd have to dig out the study, so I don't have it on me, but um, I think that there's an interesting question about when is it, when is the appropriate time to have the video on? And when is it the appropriate time just to have a vocal conversation? Um, so I think it, it really depends on the context of what you're, you're achieving. And um, of course, I think we've all been in the situation where um, we've, we've been dialed into the meeting and we've been doing something else and we, we really wouldn't want somebody else looking at us at that point. Um, so I think that there's, a, there's absolutely, I think it's a, a key tool for encouraging participation and, and full presence and awareness. Um, and then also, uh, I think we've all had a meeting or two where we've been like, actually, I can listen to this one and also be doing something else. The other element of it is that uh, if in a meeting you do not have good audio, the video is useless. Um, video alone does very little 
for folks who are listening to the meeting. And so the first pass and something that we talk about with the development of the meeting out is the audio has to be exceptional. Um, if you can't hear each other, it doesn't matter how much you can see. And so the that first pass sense. is great audio in any meeting. And then video is like an app is something that you add on for a better experience, but without good audio, you, you know, the video doesn't matter. And that the point when I don't use video in a meeting, we have terrible internet in our office. <laughs> and if the connection is so poor that we cannot communicate, I will definitely grab my phone and call someone on the old fashioned telephone because I need to be able to make sure that we have a good audio connection before the video even matters. And I think actually that's a really good point is that I, I wish that more developers did have terrible internet where they work because so often um, you end up with products that are beautifully designed when everything's working perfectly, but actually most people are working right. in situations where the connectivity is intermittent or where they work in as, you know, as you do more and more working, that's not just one place and then the office. It's it's typically multiple different environments. You can see I'm in a hotel room because I'm about to deliver a workshop tomorrow. Um, so, you know, you might not actually know what the connectivity is going to be like. You might not be reliable. And yeah. so all of that stuff means that um, developers need to be prepared for asynchronous um, things to work not as well as you might think and for them to degrade gracefully. For Caitlin, you've spoken a lot about your research in terms of what you do for digital anthropology. But can you tell us a bit more about what digital anthropology actually is and some of the recent things you've been looking into? Sure. So I would say, in my mind, particularly the way that we do it at the LEF, there's kind of four key areas that I think are really crucial for digital anthropology. I think it really allows people to um, identify opportunities for innovation by connecting more effectively with their customers. And when I say customers, I don't just mean the end user. I mean anybody essentially who you work with because everybody, no matter who you are, um, has a customer. You know, So there's always someone who essentially needs something from you. Um, and if you have an understanding of what the contextual environment of that need is, you're going to make a better product for them. I think the other thing it really allows you to do is, um, and this is my favorite phrase, bouge day. Um, it's, it's really thinking about things that people accept typically and looking at them in a completely new way. So, you know, um, just making, um, uh, questioning assumptions that aren't there. So I saw a really interesting article recently about, for example, um, why do hotels provide toiletries except for toothpaste, which is you know, one thing that you think everybody would need. It's, you know, it's it's one of the common toiletries that we all use every day, we hope, right? So why is everything else provided and not that one? And it, essentially it turns out it's because it's not a luxury brand where other things feel luxurious. That was the, the supposition anyway, but there's no real, you know, um, one reason behind it. It's just, um, there's, there could be a number of different things. So you can examine things in a whole new light and then say, well, what kind of opportunity might you have if you suddenly became a luxury toothpaste manufacturer and what did that allow you to do? Um, the other thing I think which is really important is um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a user of big data. I'm a fan of big data. Um, I've worked with numerical data consistently. Um, I also think that it's you, you can run into some dangerous situations if you abstract things so much that you lose touch with the real underlying feelings, emotions, and um, contextual information. And um, what qualitative data allows you to do is to dig back under the surface and to have those kind of real human experiences. So to contextualize all of the, the big data and bring it back to the small scale. And I think that's really important for people to get a real grasp on what's going on, especially in a world of vast, quickly moving pieces. You need those kind of touch points to just reground yourself in what's really going on. Um, and also, I think it, it gives you the chance to kind of put the customer on an equal footing. And again, that can mean an internal customer as well as an external one. Um, and just see the world through their eyes and allow them to be the expert and 
not have this kind of weird um, hierarchical relationship where you're just telling them how you're going to do things all the time. And, and that can really unlock some new possibilities in terms of how you work with people. Um, so I think those are the core questions. And then there's a number of different methods that you can use to achieve that. Um, I've already mentioned a couple of them um, essentially around qualitative data. So you can do things like ethnographic studies, which essentially is where you go and you embed yourself in an organization and you um, or, or in the community that you're, you're trying to sell to, for example, um, and you just experience what life is like for them for a little while. Um, you can also do things like um, you can do that digitally now, of course, being a digital anthropologist, um, I tend to work a lot with digital tools. So um, typically I will, rather than going to a place myself, I'll essentially give people the tools to show me what their life is like um, in their environment, in their contextual environment. Um, and you can also do things like diary studies, um, interviews, semiotics, which is the study of symbols, which can be really fascinating when you get into it. Um, so there's lots of different kinds of things. And then you can kind of unlock different um, areas of study, like looking at um, how different hardware and software tools are really enabling change in people's lives. You can look at things like what's going on with social media. So I'd argue there's um, a real role right now. We, we hear a lot about, um, for example, in social media, how much influence is that having on our political landscape? Um, and so I think there's a lot that anthropology can say about um, what kinds of communication patterns are we seeing change and what does that mean? Or is it really changing? Or is it actually quite similar to what we've had previously? Um, is there a real step change or is there just a perceived one? Um, so I think that there's a lot you can do around um, looking at group dynamics, looking at networks, uh, network analysis. Um, yeah, it's a, to me, it's an absolutely fascinating field. So I can continue on this all evening. So. Awesome. No, thank you for giving us some insight there. It's super interesting. And we know from our team working with you earlier this year, Caitlin, that it's really insightful um, to get back a report about what your specific organization, um, what needs you have and what challenges you face specifically to your team. Um, which sort of brings me on to my next question, um, which is that in your recent report, you've sort of said that there's no one workplace to fit them all. Um, and that poses a bit of ch a challenge for sort of organizational leadership. How do you sort of create a tailored workplace um, when everyone has such different needs today? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the work that I did with, with you guys was part of a larger piece of work that we did with um, five organizations and about, oh, I think um, 50 hours of interviews and um, I think almost 300 people who filled in um, various diaries in different organizations. So we had a lot of qualitative data to work with and it was really fascinating. Um, and to your point, you know, one of the things I said was, well, there's no one way that organizations need to organize their work, which as you rightly say, organizations are going to be like, well, why am I reading this report? Um, but to me, the answer is um, you really need to get in touch with your workforce and figure out what their different needs are. Um, and it really comes back to the heart of what anthropology is, which essentially is just getting in the mind of someone else's experience, you know, really stepping into their shoes and saying, what is it that is going to, from their perspective, make them the most effective? Um, and what is going, what are the kinds of things that they need to be supported in? Um, and sometimes that actually means um, putting the onus a little bit more on the employees to say, okay, um, you know, there were, there, in some cases we were getting responses like, um, you know, uh, my, my colleagues think nothing of um, scheduling meetings long after the time that I'm supposed to be at home because I normally start earlier. And I was like, well, but do they know that you come in at seven every day? Or like, have you ever actually told them that you're starting your day at seven? Um, so perhaps there's a little bit of a, um, you know, you're just saying yes to these meetings. You're not actually declining the meetings. So maybe it really, it needs to be a little bit more focused on how do we communicate effectively about what our expectations are around what work means to us. I, I have a slightly different thing that I do want to add, which is, 
uh, you know, I've spent my career building products and software products specifically, um, not hardware products. And what's amazing about what you were just saying is that in the process of talking to customers about what you want to build, they often tell you the solution that they want. And what you have to get back to is the problem of what they're trying to do and what's not working, because generally the solution they present is not actually the thing that should be built. Uh, there's a famous story about Henry Ford, and if he had listened to what people wanted then, he would have tried to breed faster horses. But instead, he built the car. And so you have to be very careful, and, and I love the idea that you have to listen in, uh, you have to listen to your employees, but you also then have to bring back to what are the problems that you're experiencing and what's actually not working, as opposed to having people just tell you the answers to what they need. Uh, I think that's just brilliant insight on how to apply that to your teams internally. Uh, with regards to video conferencing in the office space, I do think that one of the key elements that we've seen to people bringing video conferencing into the office space that I find fascinating is the reason you have video conferencing is such that the remote employees can often dial into a meeting, especially in hybrid teams, a team where you've got some folks co-located, some folks remote or um, organizations across different offices. The key element there is that then the video conferencing is fundamentally for the person not in the room. The experience is about the person who's not there. And yet so much of the time, the people in the room focus on their own experience. They focus on whether or not it works for them. They focus on how they look in the video. People are amazing in how they look at themselves all of the time and are critical about video and their, how they look. Uh, they just watch themselves. Whereas as a, an individual on a leadership team, as somebody who's working to bring video into an organization such that you can work effectively across many places, you have to focus on the person not in the room and whether or not the experience, whether or not the technology you're leveraging makes their life better and improves their experience. Uh, it is, I mean, it's not, I, I would say it's eight to one. You should value what your remote folks say over the people that are in the room together because the folks that are in the room together are going to do just fine. It's the po people that aren't there that have to be included in a different way and you have to find technology that works for them. So uh, to your point of having to listen to people, having to understand the problems, I do also think you have to think about the solutions you're bringing to the table and who ultimately is benefiting from it and then how you listen to the feedback, listening to the to the uh, candor for folks about what they're doing and then provide solutions based on who you're trying to solve for. Yeah, and I also think um, to pick up on that point as well, there are kind of three key areas in the research that I was doing this year that came out of that. Um, and to your point about remoteness and um, making sure that everyone is included, um, we had essentially three areas. We, we realized essentially that the work, the, the modern workplace isn't one place, right? We think that it's kind of this, mm -hmm. um, 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 what would you say, like a cohesion of three different things. We think time, space, and attitude, what we came to call attitude, are the three different elements that make up the modern workspace because you're working across lots of different virtual environments and physical environments. You can be anywhere. You can be doing things in lots of different time zones. You can have people who have flexible hours. Um, and really one of the things that we found that was really critical was a team needs to find some kind of rhythm of synchronicity where as a group, they are coming together at regular intervals. And whether that means in-person or whether that means hosting virtual hangouts or whether that means um, you know, just getting together once a week for a kind of Slack chat or whatever it might be, real-time chat, um, there needs to be something where everyone gets together periodically because that helps to reset everyone's um, rudder in the same direction. And it makes sure everybody is kind of moving in the same, you know, in the same route. And the other thing we found was in particular teams that are able to get together in person periodically, whether that's once a quarter or once a month or whatever it might be, 
um, that really, what they would tell us is that that enabled them to really accelerate the time that they spent apart. So um, even teams that are primarily remote or fully remote, um, they say that doesn't mean that you never get together. It means that it's really important for us to get together periodically so that we can all make sure we're on the same page. Um, and then the other thing in terms of space physical environment was like, even if you have um, relatively limited control, having just a little bit of autonomy really goes a long way. So like, it's no surprise to hear that everybody likes big windows, people want plants, people want light, people want that. But, um, and, and often, you know, we were working with groups that um, they, they have these really large old spaces. And in particular, I had a really interesting interview with somebody who um, works at the Houses of Parliament in London. Um, and he was describing all these problems they have because they want to modernize, but of course those buildings are so, so historic, you really can't really do anything with them. Um, and interestingly, what I was finding is that actually all of my, all of the private clients that I was interviewing, all the people I was talking to who work in large enterprise organizations um, had the same problems. They were like, we can't actually move our offices either. You know, um, we have these big old creaky buildings and there's nothing we can really do to the space. So how do we do something to the space? Like, what is it that we could do? Um, and really what we were telling them was even something as simple as having a team whiteboard, you know, having, having just a little bit of control over the environment that you have really goes a long way in terms of giving people a sense of their own ability to influence their environment and therefore their work. Um, but really the attitude piece is essentially the secret sauce. And um, to Karen's point earlier, the way that people talk about things is a really powerful clue to how people feel about them. So in particular, if you're asking them questions about what their experience of a particular technology or their environment is, um, you know, yes, obviously listen to what they're saying, but also listen for why that's important to them because that is the really critical thing that will tell you um, what's gonna work for them as a team, you know, ultimately. And it may not be the thing that they think it is. It may not actually have anything to do with the annoying fan that buzzes or, you know, somebody's lunch that smells. It, it might be something completely different from that. It might have something much more to do with, actually, I just wish I could sit somewhere else. You know, I wish I had more control. I wish I had more ability and autonomy to do what I wanna do. And really digging under the surface is the thing that gives teams a profound opportunity to enact change. Awesome. Yeah, really fascinating. Um, so we're really interested in sort of the future of work and where we think technology is headed next. Um, so a bit of a question for you both about what you see to be the main advancements that um, are coming up on the horizon. Maybe if we start with you, Karen, like what would you say from your perspective? So uh, one of the interesting things that a shift that's been going on in the workplace for 10 years, 15 years, is the... Uh, the growing number of millennials that are in the workplace. And by 2020, they'll represent 50% of the workforce. And millennials, as we know, there are tons of studies done. They're a fascinating group of human beings. Uh, I think we are all actually millennials on this call. Um, we've grown up with technology. We're used to mobile phones. We have high expectations of video and audio and technology in general. We expect it to be a part of our day-to-day. -day. We expect it to be included in what we're doing. And we're using it throughout our working world. We are driving, a, taking the laptops, taking the mobile phones, and then bringing them wherever we want in order to work. Uh, and I do think that that is going to continue to change the way the workforce works just by having just a larger percentage of the workforce being millennial and having those kind of digital native rooted uh, mindset about how they're going to work and how they're going to work in the office and out of the office and collaborate with their coworkers. We also know that 42% of remote workers plan to work remotely more frequently 
in the future, and 50% of on-site workers want to start working remotely. So the trend of people working from anywhere is going to continue and going to continue to grow. And I think we will have to see new tools, uh, evolving tools, both uh, both software and the tools that we use to collaborate uh, analog, but also real time from video, um, continue to evolve such that people can do working remotely from anywhere um, very effectively. I have more I can say on that, but I figured, Caitlin, you might want to add something. <laughs> yeah, I actually was going to talk a little bit about AR and VR because we're already starting oh, to see yeah. a shift in terms of, um, in particular, um, VR being used in mostly in training scenarios at the moment, in particular for training for people for things that are either dangerous, things that happen infrequently, um, things that where you wouldn't want to put somebody in a real training scenario because it essentially would be too dangerous for them to experience that, um, but also because those kinds of scenarios come up rarely. So you want them to be able to experience it over and over in a safe environment before they actually have to face the real thing. Um, so even things like um, Black Friday, training people for um, you know dealing with massive hordes of angry shoppers, um, that it's often being used in scenarios like that, um, crowd control, other kinds of um, uh, 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 industrial applications, things like that. Um, so it's being used in those scenarios, but also I think that there is an increasing amount of um, more augmented reality stuff, which will assist people who are in kind of essentially frontline worker roles. So you're starting to see applications where, um, so basically imagine this, right? So any printer in any office, you can walk up to it and you can open all the panels and it has little instructions for how you fix it, right? So you don't have to call the printer guy every single time something goes wrong. And when you do have to call him, something's really wrong. Um, so in, in a new world of uh, more augmented reality equipment, you may find that actually for lots of things, um, you have those little instructions on your eyeglasses and you can, you can manage problems all over the place, in particular for people who are doing things like fixing power lines and um, fixing factory floor equipment, um, nurses in different um, wards and things like that. Um, we're starting to see more and more applications where AR is coming into play for not just people who are you know, using it for home application, but also in the workplace. I think that's really interesting. Um, but also, I spoke to a couple of people who are um, working in AR and VR on things like scientific collaboration applications. So giving scientists better ability to communicate about their findings and to communicate about their um, possible research is really interesting. Um, and one person I spoke to um, essentially said that the way that we store information on a computer right now is really not geared towards the way that the human brain processes information. So people really process information very spatially. This is why you always forget when you leave the kitchen and go to the living room, what you went in there to get. Once you cross the threshold between the two, the two spaces, you actually, your, your brain kind of resets itself a little bit. It's like, why did I come in here? I don't know because I don't remember. And then you go back in the other space and you remember why you went in there in the first place because that's how your brain works. So their suggestion essentially is um, if you had a filing system, for example, that was more VR based or AR based, um, your experience of navigating the information could be much more natural to the way that you store information in your brain than trying to remember where all the boxes are on your screen. So I think that's going to be a really fascinating development as that becomes more common. I think to layer on top of that, the inclusion of AR into your meetings is also something that could be very interesting. And one of the things that we've seen in consumers' homes is the adoption of IoT devices or Internet of Things devices, Wi-Fi-enabled devices that know more and thus they can do more. Uh, light switches, light bulbs, Alexa, Google, all of those. 
And that hasn't happened in the workplace as much as it has at home. And so there's a place for devices like the Meeting Owl, which is an uh, internet-enabled device. It's a connected device. It can do more for you. Um, we're bringing the smart conference room to people in the next year that will allow them to know more about their meetings, understand more about their conference rooms and how people are working together, and really bring data into both the management of your office, the management of your meetings, um, and also then allowing those remote folks to see more about what's going on in the room, bringing the whiteboard to the remote participants, and so leveraging artificial reality in order to help people know more about what's going on when they're collaborating and continue to do that more effectively. Yeah, exactly. And to that point, Karen, one of the key strands of research that we have at the Leading Edge Forum is about the consumerization of the workplace. And essentially, our contention is that most of the trends that you see happening in the consumer world eventually migrate into the workplace because people become dissatisfied with the equipment that they have at work. They're like, well, I have all this great stuff at home. You know, um, why can't I have something that's as convenient as Facebook when I want to communicate with my colleagues? Hence, we now have Facebook Workplace, mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. I think especially thinking about technologies like AR and VR, there's such potential for the future that I'm sure a lot of kind of maybe the younger generations are really excited about. But potentially, what would you say to maybe managers or decision makers who might be maybe a bit more nervous about introducing not just the AR and VR, but the more kind of radical approaches to styles of working? How would you encourage them to try them? Yeah, it's such a great question because I think this is actually a problem that generally, generationally every generation faces, right? Like, you know, um, your knowledge of technology becomes obsolete. You have new people coming up the ranks who, um, you know, it can often feel quite threatening to see that happening. Um, and I think the best possible response is to um, to really to pair people or formally or informally at your workplace and to say, okay, so-and-so has a lot of domain expertise. They've been doing this for a long time. So-and-so has a lot of technological expertise or who has um, novel ways of thinking um, and really allowing them to get the most out of each other's knowledge um, and collaborating in a way that um, enables everybody to get more out of each other rather than seeing it as a competition is definitely the best way forward. I think there's also benefits to leaders setting the examples. Uh, and so those could be leaders at various different uh, levels. One of the things that we have done here at OWL is because of one of our founders in every meeting, he pays a lot of attention to the folks on the screen who are remote and watches their body language in order to be able to say, it looks like you have a question or drawing them into the meeting. By doing that over the last three years, it started to be a cultural shift in the organization where everyone does it now. And it started just from one person doing it in every team meeting and really paying attention. And so you need to let your leaders be the leaders of how change is going to happen in organization. And I think you can also smart, like pairing, start with small teams and small groups, especially in a large organization. Uh, we have customers in much larger organizations where teams are, are challenged or encouraged to go solve the problem for their small team, acting more like a much smaller organization. And they use that as the example to hold up four other places in that group. And so it's easier to manipulate how, or manipulate, that's a terrible word, but to encourage a group of 25 or 50 to change how they work as compared to an organization of two or 3,000. And so starting small and then letting those examples spread organically throughout an organization helps uh, them improve their workforce slowly and over time, as opposed to one large shift that everybody has to do it and it's mandated from the top. Um, and something else we're quite interested on in our team, um, we've heard a lot about sort of the potential negative or addictive qualities of technology. Um, and given that we know it's going to become increasingly more important to have sort of a digital connected workforce, 
what would you guys advise as sort of the best ways that we can use technology, but in a healthy, productive way, where we still allow ourselves for that focused, productive work time as well? It's a great question. And I think one of the things that I'm seeing, which is really interesting, is the the new functionality that certain kinds of technology and devices are bringing into play. For example, introducing office hours, um, introducing auto replies after certain periods, um, uh, encouraging people to stand up and walk around. Um, so I think that um, manufacturers and designers and developers are starting to recognize their own role in um, making sure that people are not caught in a kind of addictive trap, but are, you know, seems seamlessly integrating technology without allowing it to take over. So I think that's great. Um, and I also think that there is a role in terms of um, people learning to allow each other to switch off. So I'm extremely mindful, for example, that when my workday is over, I don't check my phone. Um, I leave it downstairs. And that is definitely something that, um, you know, my, my colleagues may or may not replicate that. But for myself, I, I want to make sure that I'm having that time, which is apart from that. Um, so I think that there's a kind of, there's a practice level as an individual, but there's also some great design things happening as well to, to help with that. Absolutely. And 81% of folks agree that working remotely would allow them to better able, allow them to better able handle work-life conflict. So if we're worried about the addictive benefits of technology, a huge thing that we can do for people is allow them to manage their balance between work and life better. And remote work lets you, you know, get your car fixed during the weekday instead of on a Saturday morning when you have to wait for three hours or take your kid to the doctor or even manage your own health better. And those embracing the reality that somebody can work from anywhere, work where they need to work, they have the technology to do that, your team is set up for success, then also allows them to manage their life a little bit better such that um, they can have productive, healthy attitudes towards work and towards life. I think one thing that we think is really important in terms of a healthy production, productive team is that you actually get to know your colleagues well and you have some kind of bond that doesn't just exist at work or through the projects you work on. So how can you suggest that we can preserve this human connection if everyone's working remotely? I think Caitlin mentioned travel and bringing teams together even when they're distributed. I think it's incredibly important to not be afraid to pull everyone together. And different teams might have different cadences on when they need that. For some organizations, once or twice a year might be another. For some teams, they need to come together every month during a difficult project, a big transition. I think you also have to encourage quick video calls. Everything doesn't have to be a meeting. If I'm working on something and I turn to my colleague who sits next to me and I have a conversation with them, I can also slack someone and say, hey, do you have a quick minute? jump on a video call for seven minutes and then jump off. And we've made a connection there that's a little bit deeper than sending an email or just sending a Slack because we actually took a minute to talk and say, how are you doing or how are you feeling or any of those kinds of social graces that happen. I think you also need to lean into transparency. It's really important if you have a workforce that's distributed, that is hybrid in many locations, uh, having you know the folks in the office get to benefit from the fact that our leadership team sits with everybody in the office. But how do you also allow the remote folks to benefit from that transparency? It doesn't work if transparency is only communicated verbally because we're having conversations in front of people. You have to find ways to bring that to everybody in the company. Stand up, all hands, communication. Uh, we actually, I sit down every Saturday morning and I write up all of my thoughts on the business and then just share them with the entire company. Because the folks who sit next to me every day, I, I talk nonstop. I'm constantly saying, what about this? Or what about that? Or what do you guys think about this? Or this is the thing I'm talking about. And I have to find ways to bring that to everybody else. 
I know organizations using video um, to do that. I, I'm going to forget the name of it, but um, recording little videos, having the leadership team send them out uh, and using that as another way to communicate information. You have to embrace communication and transparency at a different level uh, then you did have to when you just sit next to each other and can talk all day long. And I think that's crucial to helping people feel bonded to the mission, to the company, and to each other. So one of the things that we really noticed in the study that I was doing this year is that when things move online, um, it's it's very easy for things to suddenly get extremely formal because you set up meetings and a meeting is a very formal environment. So even if you're just having a video chat, you've scheduled the thing, you've decided it's taking half an hour. So then nobody knows how to stop it once you've actually achieved the goal of the meeting. So you're kind of like just using up the time, right? And it just becomes a very formal interaction. And um, what we really found was that, I mean, first of all, to, to trust is incredibly important in a team, like incredibly important because you need to build that trust in times when it's not needed so that when you know, things are really happening. And when you really need your teammates to be there for you, um, you can you can rely on them, you can trust them. And you know that because when small things were happening, you had that relationship of trust. So like those little tiny micro interactions, that small trust is really, really critical to building up to the big trust when you need it. And so we, we asked a couple of different groups what they do to try and build this trust in different ways, in particular, when they're remote and distributed or working in different time zones. Um, and there were a couple different things that people suggested. Um, we've already talked about getting together periodically, but another one is um, essentially uh, kind of having virtual coffees with each other. Um, so, and that can either be you schedule it so uh, you, you have a kind of set time and everybody rotates around the team so everyone gets a chance to do it, or you just have a set time on a Friday that's like, all right, everybody dial in at this time. It's coffee for some, it's after work drinks for others, you know, just dial in and, and we can hang out. Um, other groups have done it differently. So they'll decide that um, you probably already have some kind of standing meeting with your, your team. Typically people do. Um, and you might say, actually, the first 15 minutes of this meeting is just us hanging out, you know, and then we'll use the rest of it for business or the last 15 minutes or whatever it is. Um, or you might decide that um, you're going to end the meeting early and then people can just stay on if they want to and hang out. Um, so there's lots of different ways that you can do this. Um, one group describes having periodic quizzes just for fun, um, games and different um, team games that they run with each other. Um, I worked in a place where we did like a, um, uh, a virtual um, Fitbit steps counter thing and they, they all competed. I didn't do that, but other people did. Um, and the teams got really into it. And, you know, everybody was very excited about who was going to win the steps and keeping track of all the teams. There was a little leaderboard and things like that. So um, having something you can kind of rally people around um, gets really exciting for them. Um, but absolutely, that trust is really important, especially especially when you're working more and more remotely, because it is harder to form that than when you can just turn around and say hello. We have, uh, we have a local bar that we go to for the folks that are in Somerville, and we bring an owl and set it up on one of the tables there for anybody that wants to just dial in. Uh, and our remote folks will dial in, they'll say hi, they'll check out what's going on. They might chat with a few people. They might sign off. They might be, you know, still working because it's the middle of the afternoon where they are, but at least gives them the option to join as opposed to excluding them. Uh, and the other one that resonated with me is there's a, there is actually an app out there that you can add to your Slack channel called Donut that will just randomly connect people throughout the organization on the intervals that you recommend to grab digital coffee or grab a donut or whatever it is for you to come together and kind of encourage those interactions that happen more naturally around the water cooler. But when we are distributed and remote and are using tech, you have to use technology differently to get those things. Ah, that's awesome. Love the idea of virtual coffee. 
Um, that's really cool. Um, it's actually been something we've been trying out as a team. So we've been working um, like a series of different work styles experiments. Um, we've started with Zoom Friday. So just making that the default that everyone Zooms each other on Fridays um, and we don't have in-person meetings. Um, and it's been really going quite well for our team. We've been really enjoying it. Um, but we'd be keen to hear from both of you about some of the more innovative new working styles practices that you've seen arise recently. And um, if you've seen any cool examples that maybe we could steal next, <laughs> maybe starting with you, Caitlin, I'm sure you've seen lots. Sure. So, I mean, that's a great, such a great example, because the other thing about that is um, when you have teams that are hybrid, that probably is the hardest situation, because if everyone's remote, you all have an equal idea of how to be remote. Whereas if you have some people who are sometimes co-located, um, it can be easy to kind of start a conversation in the office that doesn't then get translated to the tools where the remote people can see them. Um, so one thing that was consistently recommended by people who had worked in both remote and non-remote offices was if you're working in a place, you know, you should never feel like the first person who's come into a place and is working remote. So and one way of doing that is to essentially force everyone else to have that experience. So, you know, make sure that they are working remote at some times, because then you have the natural experience of you know, understanding that um, somebody's not managed to make the connection or you're having a hard time hearing them in the meeting or whatever it is. So it, it really, that really helps. Um, we've already talked a little bit about coffee roulette and quizzes, things like that. Um, there was an interesting one that another team um, came up with, which essentially was um, that they, they felt like they had meetings all the time and then, then they never had any time to themselves. Um, and really what they decided to do was just to make every meeting 15 minutes shorter so that they had 15 minutes just to check emails or go use the bathroom or do whatever they need to do in between times. Rather than stretching it out for that full hour, they just said, we're just having 45 minute meetings and that's it. Um, I've seen teams who, for example, say that everybody starts their day by um, planning and checking what's going on, um, reading some lessons learned from a prior project, et cetera. So they actually will have time that they've specified in their calendars to say, this time is just us. No meetings, no nothing, you know, just me reflecting on what's happening. Now, to be fair, that's not going to work in every environment, right? You know, some environments are much more fast paced than that. Um, but you absolutely do need some reflective time during your week. Um, studies have shown, for example, that um, people perceive their productive time as their own personal focus time. So they don't perceive emails, they don't perceive meetings, etc., as being um, effective usage of time, which is interesting because those are the times that collaboration is really happening, right? You know, and yet we always we always see those things as a time drain. Um, but it's mm -hmm. really important to have that balance between doing things together and having some time to think and reflect. Um, and different teams have different ways of achieving that. Um, so blocking our time is one. Um, I've seen some teams, and this worked really well to, for them, was um, they actually had experimented with having two hour more on a Friday where they were essentially told, um, you can do whatever you want. You're expected to not do your regular work. You're expected to be doing something that is an innovative use of your time. Um, this was in a research and development unit and they were essentially told, um, whatever it is that you think in this time is going to be interesting, productive, fun, um, doesn't have to do with your kind of day-to-day -day daily grind work, but is something that you can take back to the team and show us something new, something innovative. Please use this time for that. And what ended up happening was, um, because this was a distributed team, but they all worked in different offices um, with other people from the same company, but not within their team around them, they said, we actually can't use that time because everyone's looking at us and they think that we're not working. You know, So they might be reading books, they might be playing with tools online, they might be doing different things. And they were essentially saying, unless I'm like doing email or like making a PowerPoint, 
people don't think I'm working. So they weren't using the time effectively. So instead they transitioned away from doing the two hour Friday morning thing. Um, and this was also a team that used to ping pong back and forth to the offices all the time to see each other. They were doing a lot of traveling. So they said, all right, we're gonna do this differently. Instead of two hours on a Friday morning, once a month, we're all gonna get together at one of the offices and then we'll have the whole day together and we will just be together and we'll be doing that experimentation with each other and then go back to our day-to-day our -day work. And that was much more effective for them than doing the two hour blocks because A, it allowed them to be together and have that sense of solidarity that they were doing something and that nobody was like looking over their shoulder and thinking that they weren't working. Um, and B, it, it comes back to that synchronicity thing. So that it was actually their time to get together. And C, in the, in the case of this particular team, it also helped them cut down on quite a lot of travel time because they were really doing a lot of it. They were back and forth all the time to three different offices. Um, and because of the nature of their work was very sensitive, they couldn't actually do a lot of the things that you typically think of when you want to think about digital collaboration. So there was lots of stuff they couldn't really share in that way. So this allowed them time to get together, talk about those things and then do what they needed to do separately. Um, so yeah, I think there's lots of different ways and different ways of setting up different kinds of rhythms. Some really cool ones that I've seen recently. Uh, one is at my husband's company where they're a national company. They have lots and lots of small offices all over the United States and pulling people together for an all hands meeting is virtually impossible and has been as long as he's been there. So instead the leadership gets together every Friday afternoon and they record a podcast and it's 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, but it gives the update on everything that's going on in the business. They bring in different guests. They bring in different people to talk about what's happening. They address issues. Uh, they address questions from the employees. And they have a rotating schedule of what they're doing. And then the employees get to listen to it maybe during the day when it works for them. Maybe they do it over the weekend. Maybe they do it while they're doing dishes. But it gives that same communication at a convenient time and location for the employees as opposed to using the schedule of the executive to drive when people should come together and have this conversation. Yeah, I'd like to add one more example, which is about use of space. Um, so one of the things I think that happens mm -hmm. a lot with remote teams is um, you, instead of having like a bank of desks that's allocated for the entire team, you end up with these like small banks and not everyone's there all the time. And um, often what happens is when everyone wants to get together, there's not enough space. And then the rest of the time, nobody's using the space. Um, so I've seen a, co a couple examples of companies where instead of doing that kind of traditional route, it's like, well, we mostly expect you to not be in the office, but when you're here, you have a team home, which may not look like a traditional desk space, but for example, there might be like um, a big blackboard where you can all leave messages to each other only when you're here. Um, we might schedule lunch, um, team lunches on particular days so that when people fly in, um, you're making the most of your time socially with each other to have that kind of connection and rapport building, um, not only with your own team, but also with other teams who might be in the office at that time. Um, so essentially setting the space up to be kind of like a, almost like an airport lounge, in a way, like, you know, it's a space that is transient for people, um, but you're expected to come back there repeatedly in essence. And it's it's kind of a comfortable space. There's some stuff for just your team. So there's that sense of solidarity, um, but you can essentially only access that when you're there. So you kind of have to keep coming back to see what, what's been the update, who's left a message, what's happening, you know, who's in the beanbag today, so. That is really, really cool. I like the idea of that, definitely. Touching on that, do you think, the way that we use technology needs to differ between organizations depending on how big they are. So are certain styles of working better for larger companies or is it more to do with kind of the sector or the unique needs? Hmm. So it, to my mind, it's not so much about the size of the company because really when you get right down to it, um, you typically are not probably working with, I would say more than 20 or 30 people in a day. And that's at a maximum. Like I would say, I haven't 
I haven't done any mapping on this and I'm sure somebody has done research on this, um, but you know, you have your kind of core team that you work with all the time. You then have some people who you work with like a little bit of the time. And then there's like the other people that work in the company, right? You might deal with them occasionally, but really you're probably only dealing with a few people every day. So um, I think when you think about installing techno technology in a large company, the challenge is learning to think about the installation, not as, oh my goodness, we have 70,000 employees, but as, oh my goodness, each group of five, each group of 10 people is going to have to use this in a way that works for them. So it's really about learning to rethink about the way that your um, your employee base works, so that you know when 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 companies are thinking about investing in big technological changes. Um, to Karen's point earlier, um, a good way of doing this often is you take one or two teams who are willing to experiment. You give it to them. You see what happens, and then if they really like it, then probably another team will want it, and another team will want it. So kind of taking that ripple effect and making it work for them. I think is probably a more effective way of doing that. And, and that's the way that actually that people will start to adopt it naturally. And, um, you know, you break down that barrier of, oh, we're a massive company. It's like, well, yeah, but your teams are not massive. Your teams are small. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at things. Um, and I guess sort of a final question from us would be um, moving forward with sort of remote working practices. It would be great to hear from you both what your top tips would be um, for how to make that as successful as possible for teams. Um, so maybe Karen, if you want to kick us off. I think you need to empower your teams with the right technology and tools, and you need to be flexible to recognize that these things are innovating very quickly, and what works now might not work in six months as your team changes, as the tools change, and you need to continually be testing and openly innovating and looking for new things uh, to help your team work better as they grow and change and are in different locations with different office setups or are not, uh, and look to just continue to innovate what you do every day. Yeah, I'd say my top tip comes back to something we've talked about a couple of times in this call, which is finding the synchronicity. So finding a rhythm for your team where everyone can get together in whatever format that works for you. Um, and then my second tip would be something Kara said earlier, which is make sure that the audio works most of all. Um, video is important, but really the audio needs to be, it's really critical. And it was something that came up several times in, in the study that I was running this year as well. Um, you know, in fact, one CEO changed his mind about the fact that he was complaining a lot that people were ordering all these really expensive headsets. And then we showed him some pictures um, and some, you know, things that his workforce had said, which essentially were, I can't hear my colleagues who are working in a different language in a different country. Um, you know, look at this. I'm not comfortable. This isn't working. And he's like, fine, I'll get them all new headsets. So essentially, you know, really the kit is important and make sure the audio works. Thank you so much, um, to both of you, for giving up some time today. It's been a really interesting discussion for us to, to look, be a part of. Um, cool. Um, well, thanks for absolutely. having us. Thank you so much. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. This has been fun. Awesome. Right. Have Great. a good one. Awesome. Have a good one. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.